Zion Baptist Church, we celebrate your presence here today with us. Enjoy the worship service as you sit back and listen to the singing as it gives inspiration to your soul and then the preaching of the word of God as it gives instruction to your soul. Be blessed as God has a word for you today. Well, he's a wonder, he's a wonder in my soul. Wonder. He's a wonder. He's a wonder. He's a wonder. He's a wonder. 
Good morning, family, friends, and guests. Here are our weekly announcements. Tune in every Wednesday for our prayer meeting at 6.30 p.m. on our virtual Bible study every Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. On the weekends, we have our youth and young adult Sunday school sessions every Saturday at 10 a.m. and our adult Sunday school every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. We thank you so much for joining us this morning. Make sure you follow us on social media and make sure you have a blessed rest of your Sunday. One more day that the Lord have let me live to see. Here it is, one more day. He has kept his arm wrapped around me. Lord, I realize that I could have been dead and gone for some reason why you spared my life and you let me live on one more day I've given you all of the praise here it is one more day Lord I thank Lord, but when these are the words that I say, thank you, dear Lord, for one more day. One more. For waking me up on time, here it is one more day. Lord, you close me in my right mind. Lord, I know, Lord, I know. Yes, sir. You are standing by my side. Here it 
Get your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 14 through 24. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 14 through 24. Now, we won't deal with all 10 verses in this sermon. This is going to be a two-part sermon. This is part three, and next Sunday will be part four. We're still dealing with the theme, the process of recovery, but I want us to take a look at this very life-changing, transformative passage in Mark chapter nine, beginning the reading at verse 14. Here's what it says. And when they came back, to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately, when the entire crowd saw him being Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And as it had often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, but help my unbelief. 
we're dealing with the title again, The Process of Recovery, but the subtitle today of this sermon is Dealing with Unbelief. Dealing with Unbelief, Part 3. We are both confronted and comforted by this episode in the ministry of Jesus that can contribute to our request in dealing with our unbelief. We are confronted with this subject of unbelief because the word it sets itself keeps appearing in the narrative as a major identifier. It may have been a continued annoying mentality within the life of the disciples as well as the unnamed man in the text. It's the Greek word, apistos, which simply carries a negative connotation of disbelieving, particularly in the Christian faith, rendering something impossible to overcome, being faithless, which explains why Jesus puts forth an indictment against these disciples in verse, tw in verse 19, when he says and calls them an unbelieving generation. Could it be that the opportunities witnessed by these disciples were overshadowed repeatedly by their own self-imposed obstacles? How might one disbelieve when they saw blinded eyes open, when they saw withered hands straighten out, when they saw deaf ears open, when they saw Jesus restored an individual's dignity, when they saw resuscitation experience on a consistent basis. They were eyewitnesses of all of these miraculous moments, and yet they suffered from the indictment of unbelief. But before we move too quickly, there is no room for our own criticism of these disciples when they too are guilty of a crime we are guilty of the same crime the same charge the same indictment unbelief isn't it something that we are saved by grace we are baptized in grace we are anointed with grace we are covered by grace we are encouraged because of grace, we are protected by grace, and yet we still engage in unbelief. We are confronted by the simple fact of unbelief in every one of our journey. We are also comforted by the fact that this unbelief that we struggle with, that may periodically show up, it can be possibly reversed, although it appears to be a part of the process of recovery, yet it can be reversed to become not just unbelief, but belief. And could it be that this unbelief factor had been the reason why the dispute or the conversation, or as the term really suggests in the narrative, this argument took place between the disciples and the scribes and the surrounding crowd. Could it be 
this whole issue of unbelief was raising its head. Could it be that principalities, satanic powers, plurality, plots and depravity, forces of evil, principalities were being confronted by possibilities, potential, potentiality, production, revelation, revival, revolution, and transformation. They were at war in that conversation. They were engaged in a kind of spiritual warfare, so much so that when Jesus shows up, the crowd quickly transitions from wrestling with what was to entering into what can be. This is not the first time they were trying to recover from unbelief. This may not be your first time, and it certainly is not my first time, in dealing with this issue of unbelief. We have had our moments in this category of unbelief where we struggled and wrestled with wanting to believe, but as the man finally in his request says, help me with my unbelief. However, this was the first time that potential became obvious because the crowd shifted and ran toward Jesus when they saw him. Look at verse 14 and 15. That large crowd around the disciples and some of the scribes as they were listening to them argue. But verse 15 says, and immediately when the entire crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed and they began running up to greet him. Why? Well, it's something amazing about this word amazed in the text. When they saw him, they were amazed. The word amazed in the text is a strong compounding word causing some scholars to speculate that when Jesus showed up as he was descending from the Mount of Transfiguration, he brought with him this amazing afterglow from that space, just like Moses did when he descended from Sinai carrying the tablets of the law in Exodus 34. The difference between Jesus and Moses was that when Moses came down, Aaron and the others were afraid to come to Moses because of that glory, and Moses had to summon them to come that they may have conversation. But when Jesus shows up with this glory, notice that the crowd was not afraid to come near him. Moses had to invite, but Jesus, his presence merely invited them. Perhaps not because of being awestruck, but because they knew that Jesus was the miracle worker and his reputation preceded him and at last, by many, perhaps this is their first encounter with the miracle worker himself. What makes this story so life-changing is the question that Jesus poses to the disciples out of his own observation. What are you arguing about with them? Verse 16, the disciples, the scribes, 
those whom you would expect to be able to respond with a reasonable answer said nothing. Instead, what stepped out of the crowd was an unnamed man who spoke because he had been wrestling himself with something neither he nor his son could manage to obtain. Here's my first point. What he was struggling with and what he wanted to get a hold of was the control in the life of his son. The control in the life of his son. He knew if his son was to experience a change condition, there must be a change of who and what is in control of his son's life. Listen to the father, his description in verse 17 and 18. Teacher Jesus, I brought you my son who's possessed, as several translations says, with an evil spirit, and that spirit makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, which suggests that although it's present in his life repetitively, it only raises its head periodically now and then. And when it does, it makes its presence known. It seizes him, which meant that its intention is to take control of his life. It dashes him, as some translation says, throws him to the ground in its violent attack on this boy's life. It throws him to the ground and he foams at the mouth, creating a health issue better known as epilepsy, causing his entire body to fall under convulsions, and he grinds his teeth and stiffens out. Says the father, I told your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. He identified who it was that had control of his son, that evil spirit that won't permit his son to talk, that evil spirit that seized his life and directs his life and lives through his life. I'm reminded of the late John Henry Clark who used to say, if you don't control your mind, somebody or something else will in the same manner, the late John Wooten used to say, when you lose self-control, everything will fall. Can you visualize that boy's life? As he has lost self-control, if nothing more, for those periodic moments in which this spirit rises to control him, his life in that moment is falling to the ground. The question becomes, what's controlling your life what's controlling my life is it another person outside of the Christ outside of the Holy Spirit is it guilt is it shame is it doubt is it fear is it an evil spirit or is it many evil spirits is it that which keeps us prohibits us from confessing that we need help and it violently throws our life to the ground, 
twisting our interbeing while controlling the production of our life by way of narrative. Have you gotten tired enough where you are now ready to speak out and reach for your deliverance? I just find it fascinating that when this man moves along with the crowd, and apparently the crowd is much more amazed at the fact of the glory that they see around Jesus, and yet this man identifies the fact by speaking out to Jesus and says, here's the problem that I have, and I brought him to you that he may be released. But notice how that sentence closes in which the man speaks in reference to what he brings to Jesus, verse 18. But then he says, but therefore I took him to your disciples, but they couldn't do anything with him. The man states that he came to the disciples believing that they were the specialists who spoke on behalf of Jesus or at least could tell him what he needed to do to get this control issue broken or transitioned in the life of his son. It is certainly an indictment to us when people come for some sense of direction and we are not astute enough to share out of the word of God how they can take steps to begin to relinquish or take control of their life. It's an indictment against us when we become afraid to remember that God also has employed, has empowered people whose mindsets have an exceeded understanding of how the mind works and we may call them clinical psychologists, we may call them counselors, we may call them mental health persons, whoever they are, but yet it does become imperative at times that we lead persons to those who can get that kind of help because something else is controlling their life and they want to be broken free. And this man speaks out and says, I want my son's life to be changed and I want you to take control of his situation. The disciples, if we read further in the narrative, and we will look at this in the week to come, the disciples no doubt are embarrassed. And they are embarrassed because they have been given power by God in their assignment to settle these kinds of matters, and yet they have been unable to do it. If you read Mark chapter 3, verse 15, and Mark chapter 6, verse 7, God gave them power to address these kinds of moments, and yet, in this moment, they were unable to resolve a problem, perhaps because they were not up on the Mount of Transfiguration like Peter, James, and John. Could it be because they were not in the church environment that they didn't know how to operate outside of that environment? Or could it be that the man, as he brings his son, and the evil spirit knows that these individuals are not as astute or prepared to handle the onslaught of satanic power because they know outside of the realm of church they don't understand how to walk in the spirit and so they end up throwing this young man into another state 
of convulsion. The man being confronted with disappointment. And that's the one word, how I hope, and yet how I know that we've often both permitted as well as encouraged people who may have attended the church to leave disappointed, perhaps because we didn't give them either what they needed or we weren't willing to find out what they needed. The man is disappointed because he knew that the control of his son's life was in the wrong hands. Perhaps now you come to think about your own life in this situation and recognize that the control of your life right now is in the wrong hands. Hands that mean you no good. Hands that desire to lead you in the wrong direction and hands that will crush you at every opportunity. Man also knew that he could have remained silent in the, in the crowd like the rest of the crowd, but he decided his voice would be the change. Graciously, as we roll through, at least in the past, prayerfully this is a new day, but yet the fight never ends. As we move toward another phase of fighting for social justice, for equality, for fighting for righteousness, for fighting to make sure that justice is meted to everyone equally, that the poor are not merely marginalized, but that they are, are made sure that they are counted and that their dignity is not erased. We become their voice their voice so they, they can be heard, but also that the control that's ruining their life, that power, those chains can be broken. And this man knew that if he spoke, he believed that something would happen, and I believe the voiceless will never leave us, Perhaps because God intends for those of us who have a voice, who's willing to speak, who's willing to fight, and who's willing to become vulnerable, who's willing to take the risk, will speak up for those who are under the control of oppression, of white supremacy, of evil, of inhumane treatment. And those of us who are willing to speak, speak out. Here's some advice that I want to suggest to you. Keep this in mind as you consider as we move in this narrative about this control issue. Listen to this. It's not what you say to everyone else that determines your life. It's what you whisper to yourself that's your greatest power. I say that because as I consider the man standing in that crowd he could have shouted something more to the people about the amazement and the grandeur of Jesus, but instead, I'm convinced he said something else to himself. He said, I'm convinced that enough is enough, and I will no longer stand for this condition 
in my son's life. I'm interceding on behalf of my son and I now know he will not recover unless I invest. Unless I invest time, unless I'm willing to take the risk, unless I'm willing to be vulnerable, all in the name of his recovery. And I want to tell you that that's a gospel message that seems to be speaking loudly to us that injustice is never corrected by silence but it is at least confronted by those who are willing to rattle the cage and even turn the cage over and by any means necessary do what has to done in the words of Amos to make sure that justice rolls down like waters and righteousness in a mighty stream. That's what God is calling us to do. This process of recovery in our lives, we have to be living witnesses of how God helped us recover. Now we have a calling to help others and in their state of unbelief because of the control of someone else, they need somebody to help them recognize that there is a way to break the power of unbelief. When we do that, that would mean that the next step that this man would have to do is not only deal with the control issue, but now that he knows who can be better in control, he now must confront. That's my second point. He's dealing with the control of this son's life, but now he has to confront in order to transition control. You and I can't recover unless we confront our ills, unless we confront our deficiencies, unless we recognize that source, whatever it may be, that leads to depression, that leads to loneliness, that leads to insufficiency. We've got to find out what is that, what is that, and it must be confronted. That's the only way you're going to resolve that issue in your life. It doesn't mean that I'm trying to be argumentative, but it does mean that I've got to be willing to confront what agitates me. This is what Jesus did regarding the man's issue, the son's problem. Notice in the narrative after he confronts the disciples about their unbelieving mentality which disabled their faith from orchestrating change in this boy's life, Jesus confronted what was controlling this boy's life, the evil spirit. Look at verse 19 and 20. Jesus tells the disciples that they are an unbelieving generation wondering how long does he have to actually come to their rescue instead of them walking in the power of their anointing. And the Bible says in verse 20, after Jesus told the man, bring your son to me. He says, in essence to the disciples, class is in session again. Pay attention. Watch how I do this. 
Verse 20 says, and they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. Read that very slowly and very closely. When he saw him. Why would it not be called when it saw him? No. Because the spirit of evil and good is the personification of a person because it's driving the behavior. Look at what it says. Because whenever you confront what agitates you, be prepared for its aggressive reaction. Whenever you decide to confront what agitates you, be prepared for its, regret, for its aggressive reaction. Notice that critical point in verse 20 which suggests that that evil spirit, notice now, in the previous verses when it saw, when he saw the disciples, nothing happened. But when this spirit saw Jesus, something did happen. When that spirit saw the disciples, there was no threat. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it reacted violently because that spirit knew what power was now confronting it. Sometimes we're not able to recover when confronting because we're not operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're trying to work this thing out merely in self and let me help you. God is there to help with all the help that you need. Take control of it. Take it. Ask for it. Because when God begins to operate in us, evil knows, the devil knows, when there is a strong presence of the reality of God. I want you to think about this for a moment. David, David was able to recover hope for Israel because he confronted Goliath and he did so with these words. You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord whom you have offended and defiled. 1 Samuel 17 verse 45. David knew that he couldn't win against Goliath without knowing where his strength comes from, without knowing where his power resides. You must know that God is able, because when you confront, when you're willing to confront that which is trying to control your life, here's my third point, then you are now prepared to conquer, dealing with control, willing to confront, and now you're ready to conquer. Listen to what David said when he was looking at that which he was now ready to conquer. Today the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut your head off. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people.
1 Samuel 17, 46 through 48. David is trying to tell us that when you know where your power resides and you take unbelief and replace it with the smallest, as Jesus would later say, of mustard seed faith, you can not only confront but conquer whatever it is that's trying to control your life. When you're serious about your conquering, keep this in mind, evil will resist. Evil will attack. Look at what the text says. It says that the evil spirit threw the boy into convulsions and he falling to the ground, foaming at the mouth, violently being attacked, creating epilepsy. Because you confront evil, it won't just go away. It's going to fight back because it definitely is going to test whether or not you know in whom you believe. Whether or not you recognize who has the power to help you overcome. Whether or not you recognize who's going to give you the direction to conquer what you are trying to confront. And when it recognizes that, it will attempt to fight back, but greater is he that is in you. The God in you, the hope of glory, will give you the power to conquer. That's what David did. He conquered Goliath because he knew in whom he believed. He knew what God had done for him before, and this moment was no less because he was serving the same God who would do it again. The man who I believe came to Jesus by way of hearing his reputation and heard that no matter the malady, he could fix it. And yet the man still struggled with a sense of unbelief. Let me say a few things to you about when you are in the confronting and when you're in the conquering mode. Your objective is the attempt to move forward, to break free from some other control, to regain and to recover, or to gain what you know either you never had or that you had before and you want to get it back again because you need it until this is accomplished because I'm here in this closing moment to tell you that as you, if you, as you read this story it didn't just instantaneously happen but it took some time and I want to suggest to you that when you're trying to deal with unbelief you don't stop unbelieving overnight but there are series of episodes that happen in your life. There are things that come about that will cause you to have to stretch what small faith you have, plant it into the soil of belief and watch it grow over time. You look at this story 
And there's a couple of things it suggests to us, and then I'm done. Number one, I want to suggest to you to maximize where you are while you are dealing with what you were. Let me say that again. Maximize where you are while dealing with what you were. When you talk about progressing into belief from unbelief, right now, maximize the small steps of increase that you experience. While you're still dealing with the unbelief, trying to move away from it, take advantage of every victorious moment that you encounter because it's a step in the right direction. It's a manner in which it's trying to help you see as this man did in reference to his son. Maximize it where you are. Because notice, the father has to endure the intensity of the moment until change comes in his son's life. You got to endure it. It may take not only some time, but extensive time, but keep working at it while you're still dealing with what you were. Here's the great thing about this particular incident. If you think about this analogy, notice the person who is climbing up a rope out of a space beneath. They don't spend time looking down, but they're climbing and they're pulling on the rope has them looking up. Because what they're looking up to is the gathering, is the conquering of victory, of freedom. And they're maximizing every inch that they're able to move up. Because they know where they were and they don't want to go back there. But they're pushing themselves to go forward. And that's what I'm here to tell you this morning. Push forward. Keep pulling on that rope. Because that rope is God's provision of salvation to change your life. Because you're dealing with who was in control of you and you've made the decision to confront what's controlling you. And now you've decided I'm going to conquer what's trying to control me. And so to do that, you maximize where you are. Second thing I want to say to you is don't lose where you are because you keep going back to where you were. Don't lose where you are because you keep going back to where you were. Let me simplify that. Don't lose your today fighting against yesterday. See, listen to Isaiah 43. Listen to God's words to the prophet to tell the people, don't remember the former things. Stop thinking about the fact that you've had unbelief. I got it. I know you have it. But you've got to replace those unbelieving thought patterns with that which gives you life. And so I got to stop thinking about yesterday. I got to stop fighting in yesterday, which is doing nothing more than robbing me of my today. And when that happens, I never see tomorrow. And then watch this third thing. 
when you're dealing with unbelief and you may not get to the space where you desire. Let's say tomorrow you may not believe that mountains can fall. But you do believe that pencils can fall off of the table. This is a facetious example, but just follow me. It's the small progress. And here's what I want to say to you in my third saying. Even if you can't kill it, get it under control and conquer it. This is the challenge that we have in terms of habit. We try to wonder why we can't ever break the habit. Well, we want to break the habit instantly overnight. And if you can do that, I applaud you. That's exciting. But most of us struggle because the habit has not only been planted, but it has taken root. And the idea is, if I can't break it overnight, if I can't kill it, at least let me get it under control where it doesn't continue to hamper or destroy me as I'm slowly conquering it. Little by little, I'm learning to take control of it. That's what dreams are all about. Little by little, I'm making the manifestation of that dream come to pass. I'm thinking of the late Otis Reddy who used to sing, I got dreams, dreams to remember. There are many of them there. And I recognize that in order for that dream to come past, there are some things that I got to get rid of. Hebrews 12, 1, let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily besets us, throws us off the path. And let us run this race with some patience because sometimes unbelief takes time to conquer. Start where you are. Use what you have and do what you can. That's the practical application of this. Control, confront, and conquer. Start where you are. Use what you have and do what you can. Because we can become frustrated when we don't have that transformation overnight. Some things are not going to happen overnight. Most things don't happen overnight. When a habit has developed in your life, it takes time. When something has come in and taken control, sometimes it takes time to break that yoke and get control back of your life. Slowly but surely, use what you have. Start right where you are. And do what you can. One of the hardest things was learning and will be learning that you are worth your recovery. One of the hardest things for you to learn is that you are worth your recovery. Learn it. Because your very life may depend on it. And then here's the final point I want to make to you. In recovery and unbelief, it doesn't matter how slowly you go as long as you don't stop. It doesn't matter how slow you go as long as you don't stop. 
Remember, recovery is not for people who need it. Believe it or not, it's not. It's for people who want it. Not for people who need it, but for people who want it. Because people may need it, but never go to conquer it, to get it. But you will, and I'm going to believe you're going to do that today. Whatever it is, whatever you are struggling with, as this boy was and his father intervened, invested in his life, took the risk, spoke out, I'm praying that someone does the same for you and with you so that you can experience what this boy will eventually experience, freedom. And the father will overcome his unbelief. Our Father, thank you for the word of Mark chapter 9, and I pray that this story has breathed some life, some hope into many on this occasion in which as they leave this moment from worship, they will never be the same. They will begin to experience a transformation like never before because they will recognize they got power from on high to confront that which is controlling their life and to conquer it. Thank you for Jesus who is the liberator and who came to set the captive free. Save someone today that calling your name will give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Our prayer is that today this is the beginning of a new day for you that today whatever it is that's destroying or agitating or annoying your life something in this word will be a seed to help you start to see the growth of breaking yourself free from oppression. If you have never met Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this is the opportunity in which we encourage you to read the word of God and embrace him. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. But we always hinge on Romans 10, 9 and 10. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou wilt be saved. Salvation is what we have in the person of Christ. I trust today that he will become the Lord and Savior of your life. You will never be the same. We rejoice in those of you who graciously support this ministry. Thank you so much for all of your financial contributions. We could not continue what we're doing if it were not for your generosity. And so we encourage you to continue to give. As we come to the close of this program, you will see listed various ways in which you can give to our ministry. And let me further say, if you are not a member of this church and yet you view this broadcast, we would certainly appreciate if you are growing or gathering seeds of hope that you would also consider sowing some seeds into this ministry that we can continue to bless you as you, being an observer of this ministry, blesses us. We love you and we thank you for God giving you to us and we pray that this word has been a blessing to you this day. Remember, God loves you and so do I. Have a blessed, wonderful day and week in the Lord in Jesus' name.